Hi friends, and welcome to the latest edition of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and today's guest is Professor Suresh Venkata Subramanian. Hope I didn't butcher that one too badly. Suresh is a professor of computer science and data science at Brown University, where his research focuses on algorithmic fairness and the impact of automated decision-making systems in society. He recently served as Assistant Director of Science and Justice in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, where he co-authored the Blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. This is one of the top three longest discussions I've had on this podcast so far, because there was so much to get into, and I think every topic I touched on with Suresh had a lot of depth to it. He is an incredibly thoughtful person, and I learned a lot about topics that I've already spent quite a bit of time thinking about from him. I think this has to be one of my favorite episodes of the podcast, and I hope you take away a lot from it as well. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And now, without further ado, Suresh Venkata Subramanian. Suresh, I think that perhaps people um, who know of your work might be broadly familiar, especially with the recent AI Bill of Rights, but I want to get a little bit into your background. So let's just start with how your interest in AI began in the first place, and then perhaps the evolution towards what you find yourself focusing on now. Sure. Um, it's been quite a, a journey back and forth. <laughs> when I was a kid, I think it was uh, Turing machines and the Turing test and notions of AI that uh, sort of appealed to me. I did an undergraduate degree in computer science and thought I wanted to work. I wasn't sure if I wanted to work in AI or in theoretical computer science. And I just sort of had both those thoughts in my head when I went to grad school. And um, it, it's kind of funny. I, I went to one professor asking them if I could you know, work with them. And they gave me sort of a, a, a copy of a proceedings of a conference that said, oh, you know, take a look at this. And this is, this is what we'll be working on. And that was a lot to handle and didn't seem like what I thought AI was about. And that, you know, made me feel like I want to move in the other sort of direction, the other thing I liked, which is more theoretical computer science. So I spent my PhD time doing more in that space. And that that sort of has been my training. So, so my interest in AI was sort of not formal, but sort of from a distance for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and then over the years, you know, as I, I tend to not focus on one area, I just like to go where my interests take me. And so my interest took me from sort of understanding geometry and just geometric algorithms to understanding how um, 
we can understand data through geometry, which mm -hmm. is itself a very rich area of just the theory behind how we think about the geometry of, of probability, which is the whole of the topic, which is very fascinating. But then that led to an interest in some of the applications of the geometry of probability in data mining and machine learning, and especially in certain areas of machine learning called clustering. Mm -hmm. And that led to, you know, when I went on sabbatical, sort of a, a broader sense of, you know, I could keep working in the space and that would be fine, but what comes next? And at that point, well, 10, roughly 10 odd years ago, I was thinking, okay, you know, imagine a world, it doesn't seem so imaginary anymore, but imagine a world where everything we do is controlled by machine learning. Then the incremental improvements in your algorithms are fine, um, but we're also going to care about what they're doing and why and what we know about them. So I think I was partly correct and partly wrong. I was partly correct in thinking, yes, we're going to want to know what's going on. I was wrong in thinking there wasn't, you know, huge big advancements to be made in the core itself, which of course we're seeing with deep learning. So that was another interesting that's been going on for a while. But but given that I was interested in, you know, things like how do we verify that an algorithm does what it claims to do, that led to, you know, a lot of, you know, I, I read a lot of sci-fi for a living, and you know, I read the short story by Cory Doctorow called Human Readable where this short story was basically premised on the idea that, you know, there are systems controlling our world and it's important to understand how they're working because they could be used to our disadvantage and for the advantage of others. And there was an actual, I mean, that was a premise, but there was an actual story in, with, you know, people involved. And so that's, I think, where I got started thinking about these questions. Then I went to give a talk at one of my colleagues, a colleague of mine's university and, you know, plus one for interdisciplinary work, had a dinner with a bunch of faculty, including a sociologist who talked about the, the origins of the disparate impact doctrine, at which point I started to realize that this question of disparate impact is very much a question that lends itself to thinking about machine learning because you're separating the question of discrimination from intent and you're looking at outcomes, which is very much how, you know, it's helpful to think about how algorithms work because there is no sort of intent per se in the algorithm itself, maybe in the designer, but not in the algorithm. Sure. And I guess one thing led to another and here I am. <laughs> you sort of things got more and more, you know, you start pulling on threads and you start really things are more and more connected and you start expanding more and my waving my hands, you see this. So, and then that's where, that's where I am today. Just thinking about a very large space of questions that are interconnected that started with that sort of little thread there. I can see that interconnection kind of becoming more and more apparent as you get deeper into the space. I think for me too, there was something similar where I was broadly familiar with some of the ideas and AI fairness. So I think that there was like a researcher at Amazon I talked to who was like, oh, you know, you can actually take some ideas about like in-groups and out-groups and you can represent these mathematically. You can do some linear algebra stuff and within this formalism actually develop algorithms that meet some desired notion of fairness. And so I think that was my first introduction, at least to AI fairness. I was already thinking about AI at the time, but I think digging more and more into the literature and reading the works of um, people like you, people like Ben Green, for instance, you start to see that there are so many intersecting areas. One thing you brought up was this, um, this verification and understanding aspect, which is itself just an entire different rabbit hole kind of to dive down as well, for instance. So there's a slide that I use in many of the talks I give where it, you know, it looks like a, a, a very complicated graph with a bunch of nodes and rectangles with connections between them. 
the boxes themselves are, you know, it starts off with, oh, let's define fairness. Then it, the next box nearby is, how do we build systems that achieve those notions? Then there's another box that talks about auditing systems to make sure they satisfy these notions. Then there are more boxes starting to come in. Okay, how do you, how do you incorporate this into law and policy? How do you bring in concepts from the culture in your area? How do you bring in, you know, broader philosophical sort of themes and concepts? And then you start layering and you get this gigantic set of nodes. And then I start drawing lines saying, okay, each of my papers actually connects up one or more of these boxes. It's not necessarily in any one of these boxes. And so you see that there's a huge ecosystem of dialogue happening. And it's not as if every researcher has to understand the entire picture, but you have to understand that you're part of this big picture of interconnected questions, interconnected transdisciplinary questions around this. Yeah, I think that it's it's definitely a, a problem of like framing and the tools you start with. I think that, for example, when I read you and Ben Green, for example, I think you both articulate this really well, that somebody with a computer science background, when looking at sets of questions around fairness, around the way algorithms exist and impact these socio-technical contexts. It's like, I have this set of tools I've been trained in. So when I start to attack a problem, regardless of the intricacies of that problem, I'm going to come to it with a certain hammer. And I know that you gave a really nice talk in which you discussed this as, I think, the algorithmic lens, basically. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Do you want to maybe just elaborate a little bit on like that concept of the algorithmic lens and how you think about it? Yeah, so uh, this is something I've been pondering for, you know, I think a very long time, just trying to sort of clear in my own head how I want to think about this. The premise here is this, that when we think about applying a particular sort of set of, dis set of tools and disciplines, um, we always have a certain kind of perspective. And that perspective is good in many ways. It brings certain affordances to the table that other disciplines often don't. So, you know, for example, with computer science, you bring in concerns around efficiency, concerns around what's computable, concerns around precision of specification in a way that's often, you know, hard to deal with. But what you also have are blind spots, right? And that, I think that's the key, that there, are, that there are many blind spots in that particular way of thinking. And it's important to understand what those blind spots are, right? And that's what I've been trying to, to, to sort of elucidate. And so the algorithmic lens, while giving those affordances, has a certain number of blind spots. They involve, you know, the fact that we must make things precise, the fact that we must be able to collect, that we can get at the truth from data. And so more data is better. The idea that there is a hidden truth to find, a single uniform truth that can be found. And finally, that by using algorithmic tools like optimization, that you can actually find that. <laughs> now, these are all sort of articles of faith. If you if you are doing um you know an undergraduate you know degree in computer science and you go into grad school and do computer science, this is so much in the water that you swim that you can't even see it. It's like you know we talk about fish, right? They don't realize they're swimming in the water. What water? Right? And I think that's been that's why it's been so difficult for me to pull this out of my own brain, right? It's just it's so core to the way we think, and it's like any like any Achilles heel. It's also a source of strength, right? It's our source of strength that we require precision, lots of data, the ability to optimize. 
And so things that are your source of strength are very hard to see as sources of weaknesses, but they are in fact limits on our ability to capture what's happening in the world. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't use computational approaches. We shouldn't, that computer scientists shouldn't be part of the discussion. It means like, like any other discipline, we have our blind spots. And they have too. I mean, uh, you know, other disciplines working in the space have their blind spots as well. I may not be the most competent to sort of assess them, but I can tell you what I think some of the blind spots of other disciplines are. We all do. And, you know, in that sense, you know, I've been, there's been, you know, work on, for example, where the blind spots are in the economic lens on the world, right? On a market-based lens, where the blind spots when you bring sort of, a, you know, a, a critical race theory, though these, there are blind spots in all of these lenses. And so the answer really is that you must bring them all together so that the blind spots of one can be compensated for by hopefully not blind spots in the other and, and so on. And I think that's very important, right? It, it's, not a, it, it's often misunderstood as an argument against using the computational approaches. That's wrong. It's in fact an argument to use computational approaches because in computer science, and this is my theoretical background talking, we value the articulation of clear limits because it tells us where not to go. This has been a, a bedrock of how we think about computer science, that it, there are things we can do and there are things we can guarantee we cannot do. And that, that gives us the, the, the framework for where we can push forward. It's like, don't go here, that way is blocked, go this other way. It doesn't mean don't go anywhere, it just means go a different way. Mm. And I think that's, thinking about that is very important to knowing, as you said, right, you know, if you bring tools to a problem, which tools make sense at which moment in time? It may be that, you know, even though I'm a computer scientist, I'm looking at a problem, the best tool, frankly, is a legal tool. Like sometimes, you know, and I, when I work with my law scholars, colleagues, right, they'll say, look, sometimes the solution is let the judge decide. There is no automatic way to do this. And that may be okay. Maybe in some circumstances, that's the best you can do because you cannot formalize every single context, right? You can't do this universal representation that a computer scientist wants to do because you need the local context. You need someone to decide at that moment and that a judge may be the best person to do, or maybe not. Or you need to redesign your computational methods to account for the fact that context matters. So this thinking is very important to know where we can fail and how we can design differently to avoid failures. Yeah, there's a lot to dig into and in what you just yes. said. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just threw a lot at you there. <laughs> you did indeed. But I think that there's there's a lot of depth. And one thing that I always thought about was there is this frequent call for many people are coming to problems with different perspectives and we kind of need to bring them together. And I think initially when I was looking at these, you know, principles for designs of AI systems and ways in which we should go about it, it felt like just kind of a nice quaint, like, oh, you know, you need to just take a bunch of people with different ideas and like throw them together in a room and magic happens. And um, there's, there's a little bit of, um, I don't know when you, when you first look at those things over a while, it's like, okay, everybody's kind of saying the same thing here. Is that really something concrete that gets us anywhere? Um, or is it just, you know, let's start discussion. So hopefully we can like do things in the world in terms of developing solutions to problems that aren't just technical a little bit better, but the way you just articulated it, it is important that as people in computer science, I think you made some really good diagnoses of strengths and then also limitations in 
the ways in which we tend to frame and approach problems. And exactly as you're saying, somebody who's coming from a different perspective with different training is going to be able to shed light on issues that we don't even know we have the unknown unknowns for us and vice versa. We can also take a critical lens to the tools that others are using to approach those same problems. And so I do think that bringing together of people in the collaboration and solving of these problems is a, is a pretty important act in and of itself, I suppose. So I'm going to I'm going to preview or premiere a phrase here that's been running in my head for a while. I've never actually said out out loud. So mm-hmm. what we have here really is not is not a failure to communicate. <laughs> it's a failure to incorporate. And and what I mean by that, you're right. Getting people together in the room is not enough. It's a start. It's not enough because when we get people from different disciplinary backgrounds in a room together and they express that background, that's still kind of talking past each other. Incorporating those perspectives requires understanding the scaffolding of a problem and where different areas can bring strengths and weaknesses. So for example, right, I mean, if we agree that some of the strengths of computational approaches are in how to compute efficiently, how to optimize, how to be precise, but we also understand that precision itself can be um, can lose something about the nuance and, and sort of subtleties involved in some very complex, thorny human situations. Then it says that not only do we have to bring together the computational person and people who can speak to the, the nature of the human condition in that particular setting, but you have to find the right solution architecture that allows their inputs to be incorporated. So for example, one thing I say a lot is, you know, I I would like to have a way to elicit or pull out from a formal design process, a way when we choose a particular cost function for fairness, can we pull out from it the implicit belief systems that that cost function represents? Why? Because if you can say, look, this cost function captures this kind of set of beliefs about the world, this cost function captures this kinds of beliefs about the world, you have now created an architecture where the people who need to discuss, well, what do we believe about the world and based on what can bring that this point, that knowledge into the discussion as it's kind of an input into the architecture. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to bring people into the room together. There has to be a scaffolding in which people can bring their perspectives in to think about the problem. That's a really good articulation, I think, and definitely gets at the way I initially thought in terms of just throwing people together doesn't seem like enough. I think you're absolutely right that there needs to be this this back and forth process of really deeply understanding the different frameworks people are coming with. And to what you said, not talking past one another, but actively engaging and incorporating those ideas. So Like, for example, when, I don't know, you're a computer scientist, you're coming up with desiderata for like a self-driving car or something, then a lot of the time, when you think about that, you are going to implicitly be making moral judgments. And then you kind of have a pretty important question to throw to the people who are just thinking about morality. And of course, over centuries, we 
have not really solved all of the questions about morality or really very many of them. But it's like, I, I am the person who's working on a self-driving car. I am making certain decisions in the algorithms I develop. Those have relevant moral repercussions. And those are repercussions that need to be kind of taken on, studied, understood by people with actual expertise in that subject, not the computer science person who was like, I'm going to take all like algorithms classes and, you know, not do philosophy or something. And so I think there is that role of like different expertise. But I think that also does speak to the the call I often hear for people to be at least a little bit interdisciplinary, right? Because I think that for the computer scientist interacting with the moral philosopher, for that talking to one another to really be effective, I think each person does need to have at least a little bit of the other's background to the point where they can understand and appreciate what the other has to say. Correct. And in fact, I I would complicate this even further, or at least go one step further. Mm-hmm. The reason I often use the term in the work I'm doing in the center I'm building at Brown, I use the word transdisciplinary and not interdisciplinary. Hmm. The reason is that the conversations you've described are extremely important and they go beyond just putting people in the room. They do have force a meaningful interaction. But there's still a sense of there's my lane and there's your lane. I'm the computer scientist building the system lane. You're the moral philosopher telling me what to put in it lane. But even that I find is limiting because often what we need, sometimes, sometimes what we need are just that, and that's great. But there are places where if we want to imagine a better way of doing things, we need to go beyond the existing computer science in this example and the existing moral philosophy. We need to find something brand new. And we can only find something brand new when the computer side can say, I hear what you're saying and I get what you're trying to achieve. We don't have the tools to achieve that right now, but could we do this? And the moral philosopher says, I hear what you're trying to suggest. I understand what you're proposing as an intervention. It doesn't quite capture what I think I want to say. How about this? And you go back and forth and you create something new that was in neither of those lanes. And that's where you get some real magic. And that's where you truly are going beyond the interdisciplinary conversations that are still very important to happen. And I've seen that magic happen every now and then. It's not often, it's hard. But when it can happen, you are genuinely producing a new way of looking at the world that is not a computational way, is not a philosophical way in this example, but is something different that is that is formed by the chemistry and the interaction of these disciplines. And that's where I want to live. <laughs> because I feel like we need, I feel like there's a lot we need to do to reimagine the world that we're building. And that reimagining has to come from a place that's not just what we've learned so far. I love that reframing as as reimagining. I suppose as a follow-up here to kind of keep harping on this self-driving example, I think that a lot of the way it often gets articulated when we think about moral implications is many people will try to reduce it down to, oh, we're just thinking about the trolley problem all over again. And 
I think there is some value to that reductiveness. I think that there is a lot of wisdom in moral philosophy that we don't always attend to in as deep a way as we could. But at the same time, I think that just as you're saying, there are aspects of the changing world we live in, the way that technology has affected ways we interact with the world, with one another, the ways we engage in moral discourse that relevantly impact these moral questions. So really, it's it's not just a trolley problem, at least to me. But I'm curious if, if that's a, a sort of framing that maybe troubles you as well and that you'd prefer to see look a little bit different, perhaps. Personally, I'm very tired of trolley problem analogies because the trolley <laughs> problem, at least as far as my understanding goes, was never designed to be a recipe for how to think. So it was merely a tool to elicit the mm-hmm. varying um, ethical frameworks and thinking that humans apply to these questions. In as much as the trolley problem is helpful, it is merely to show that these are complex questions that you cannot, in fact, formally resolve in a single algorithm. And you shouldn't be trying to because we, we think differently. Context seems to matter a lot. But um, what I think the trolley problem debates also show, although then some people have begun to highlight this point, is that they reflect a discussion that's stuck within a frame. And sometimes you have to break the frame. So what do I mean by that? All the trolley problem discussions, okay, how do you make a decision in the split second? What do you do now? Assume that your only choice is, is to you know, one over, run, run over one group or run over a different group. That's all that's left to you. That's your frame. Well, and you know, a valid point has been why have we got to the point in the driving of the car in that situation where that are the, those are the only two choices? Cars can do many things. They can stop on a dime. They can sort of redirect. They can cut this thing and they can blare loud alarming sounds. There are lots of things cars can do <laughs> that are not within the parameters of the rules of the trolley problem discussion. Mm-hmm. But why aren't we considering those? Why are we limiting ourselves to that frame? You know, so I think, you know. There's often a, a desire, you know, there's often a desire by some in an adversarial way to reduce a problem to this question, say, well, you know, the philosophers can't answer this question. Why do you expect us to do it? Well, that's because you've almost deliberately chosen a frame that reduces you to a situation that's in, insoluble. Like you got a, you got your own like Kobayashi Maru incident. And then like, and the answer, just like Kirk had the answer was to, you know, you gotta think beyond the frame. And and that's where, again, you're able to come up with better answers. So I, th- I think these frames are helpful to say, you know, people have been thinking about this. You're not the first person to think about this. That's good. That's good to have that. But they're not good necessarily frames for solution designing. Right. And I think that's where, you know, thinking of the trolley problem as a recipe for solution rather than as a an indication of a of a problem is where we get into trouble, I think. Yeah, I think that definitely illustrates the ways in which frames can be utilized, discarded when necessary, as you're saying, looked beyond. It it does feel like in some way, framing is really something necessary for us just to articulate and understand things to ourselves and others. And I know that framing is one of the traps you identify in your fairness and abstraction and sociotechnical systems paper, among a few others. But when I was kind of initially thinking about this, um, one response to the, oh, your frame is naturally going to 
include certain perspectives, it is going to formalize things under a certain lens and discard others, is just to say, oh, well, the world is too complex for me to frame. But I think it's, of course, misguided to go entirely in the other direction, right? It's, as you're saying, when you break a frame, you're able to kind of stand outside it, say, is this something that's actually useful? And recognizing that there is some level of framing you are ultimately going to have to do to make something intelligible to yourself and others, at least that's how I think about it, then you can kind of acknowledge that. And then when you are coming up with a solution, you can be explicit, hey, we are utilizing a particular frame here. This is what we view as the advantages and why this is appropriate. This is what its limitations are. And I think the ability to make that explicit is is really powerful as well. So there are, again, many things to unpack here. Now, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I very much agree with you that, you know, in the whole, like, all models are wrong, but some are useful for, uh, sort of way of thinking. Mm-hmm. The idea that a frame is limited should not prevent us from using it. It means we are able to be careful about when and how we use it. You know, a, a hammer will not do a thing a screwdriver can do, but a hammer is useful for some things and the screwdriver is useful for some things. We just have to understand when we're using the hammer and when we're using the screwdriver. If I may take a moment at the risk of, you know, annoying my social science colleagues who, you know, I very much enjoy talking to, if there is a if there is a, a weakness, I feel, on the non-technical side of the world, it is the inclination to critique and uh, often a, a fear of solutions, which is why we have a term like solutionism as a bad thing. Solutionism is or can be a bad thing, um, but it's not always a bad thing. And I think focusing on, focusing on a solution in the moment, even if it's flawed, is helpful because it is precise and is more falsifiable and we can figure out where it breaks. Whereas if we allow ourselves to think, well, everything's complicated, we can't do anything, then we're stuck doing nothing at all. And that I don't think is a viable answer either. And I think that's, I, I understand. So I understand some of the reasons for this. And here's the problem. Let's take computer security, which I think is a very good model for this, right? In the world of security systems building, no one ever claims you can have perfect security. No one ever says there's a solution that is secure against all attackers. That would be silly and no respectable security researcher would ever claim that. So what do they do? Well, they say, no, no, no. Here are the threats we believe are important for this system for various reasons, because we feel we have experience. We know that this is the kind of threat vector we're worried about. Here is the system we are going to build that will defend against these threat vectors. And here's our proofs. Here's our system, whatever you know, evidence we want to provide to show that we will defend against these threat vectors. If the system gets breached, it will not be because we failed against these threat vectors. It's because we didn't conceive of a different threat vector. And so security is acknowledged to be a cat and mouse game where you build a system that's resilient against some threats and a new threat comes along and you got to redo. It's assumed that this is always going to be a work in progress, that you're always going to have to evolve. You don't don't stop you from coming up with protections because you don't say, well, I can't protect against everything, so I'm going to give up. It's more like, well, let me tell you the things I can protect against. That's a frame, right? And I will admit that I'm not doing everything, but in my best judgment, these are the most concerning threats to protect against. Okay. Why can't this happen in in this broader space? I think one genuine reason this is harder to make happen is because 
if you're thinking about saying, well, let's put in these protections on algorithms that are going to be used by policymakers in the setting, policy world isn't as nimble. Things don't change that rapidly. Once you lock something in, it may take years in the right political environment to get it to change again. So the risk of getting something wrong is a lot higher. And so there's a lot more fear of trying out something that ends up being wrong because you don't always have the chance, okay, let's just do it again. Or let's just build, rebuild it or update it the way you can do very nimbly with software. And so I think it's helpful for computer scientists like me to understand where some of that resistance to let's try stuff out comes from, but also try to point out that you can't make progress unless you're willing to at least articulate a frame of reference, say what's weak about it, but still try to do something with it. And I don't have an answer for how we do that in these spaces where it's hard to make change, but we have to do it somehow. Yeah, I think that sort of collection of concerns where perhaps we we really need to be careful and explicit about our framing, but then also when we are bringing technology into the policy domain, and where it can act in such a way so as to possibly impact people, I think also speaks to the need to really build in systems of things like algorithmic recourse, right? And you've had yep. another paper where you dive yep. really deep into this, but I think that's just kind of another aspect. I'd love for you to maybe introduce some of your, your thinking and work on that subject of recourse. Sure. Um... So what is recourse, first of all, right? The basic idea is that you, if in the context of decision-making, let's say about people, if a decision gets made about you, you should have some way of asking for recourse. Now that could be in a number of forms. Maybe you would like to say, I didn't get a loan. Why didn't I get a loan? And that question can be unpacked in many ways. So we'll hold that for a second. Or I didn't get a loan. What do I need to do to get a loan? or I didn't get a loan, I think you made a mistake, you need to fix your mistakes and reevaluate whether I should get a loan or not. So there are different ways in which this idea of recourse can manifest itself as a, an appeal of a mistake, or as an appeal to how to do things differently to improve, right? right? So if you think of it like in the context of a classroom, maybe the teacher graded your answer wrong, and you need that to be corrected, or they graded it correctly and you didn't get the points and you'd like to understand what you need to do um, to make sure you do get the points the next time, right? So think of it, that's one way of thinking about this. So there's, there was, what prompted this paper, I think, was some work by um, folks who are, other folks who are trying to formulate what it meant to achieve recourse, right? And so there the question was, oh, a decision was made about you and that was unfavorable to you you want to know what attributes of you that were sent into that system you should change so that the next time the decision is favorable. So if you think of, say, you know, and again, it's hard to visualize maybe in audio, but if you think of a line or sort of a, a line dividing those who get the loan and those who don't, right? There's some line dividing them and you're on the wrong side of it. You know, this, the space is described by, you know, information about you that's collected by the system and that puts you on the wrong side, how would you change the information about you? And I don't mean lying. I mean, like, you know, what could you do differently in the future to get you across that line? And so the question is, okay, should you suppose the system says, well, you know, you just need to be, you know, 10 inches taller and you would get this job. Okay. Technically that's a thing that 
if changed would get you the position, but it's not a realistic thing. So a lot of the papers have been looking at, okay, what does it mean to realistically convey information about what you could change? Because, you know, maybe I'll say, well, you know, just sign up for this, just apply for an MBA at Wharton and pay, you know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and then you'll get this job. Okay, you could do that. Should you, can you, do you have the wherewithal? Is that a right, is that a fair thing to say? You know, all these questions come up then. And so, the, you know, I felt like this was beginning to look like some of the early discussions around fairness and how to measure fairness. And it, I felt, you know, if we're going to have discussions about what is reasonable to ask someone to do, we have to have some kind of philosophical basis for doing so. We need to have some way of understanding in a, in a broader context, what do we want from an, an idea of recourse? What is it we care about for people? And that's a fundamentally philosophical question not a technical question, right? It, it can drive the technical question. And I think this paper, which I wrote with Mark Alfano, a, a philosopher, a moral philosopher, based on, you know, we were we hung out in a, we were hanging out in a conference room for a week, just talking about something completely different. And we started to get to know each other. And this is one of the things, right? We started talking to each other about other topics. And then we started realizing we had some interests in common. And that led to this paper. It wasn't like I said, hey, Mark, I want to write a paper on philosophical base of recourse, work with me. It wasn't like that at all. It was more like we built a connection and a relationship. And that led to this paper. And that's where it came from. Like, okay, how how do we articulate what are sound philosophical goals that could be the underpinning for how we should design? And and it turned out from the paper that what our argument was that there are ways in which the recourse notion, as formulated technically, has some benefits, but there are also ways in which it has limits if we believe this philosophical basis, which suggest different kinds of designs. So this goes back to my point. If you go back and forth, you realize, okay, this pushes you in a certain different direction for how you should implement recourse. So that's the story of the paper, really. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think one particular part that I found um, myself thinking a lot about was this bit where you invoke Kantian autonomy and making this deontological argument for the value of recourse. And it's interesting to me just because I think that the argument itself makes sense. You're beginning from this notion of autonomy, the capacity to determine the meaning of one's own life. And mm -hmm. in that light, if I am a citizen, then if there are constraints on my agency that are imposed algorithmically or otherwise, I should understand those. And right. what I thought was interesting there, though, was when you look at Kantian autonomy itself as a, a sort of framing, and I think that there's a lot of discourse recently just about the framing within liberalism, I suppose, um, of like the autonomy of the self as kind of this highest mm -hmm. good. And if you were to reject or question that framing, I wonder if you, you start to see some of the underpinnings for ways in which non-Western countries are beginning to approach this question of, um, I suppose, recourse and the way in which algorithmic systems interact with their citizens. So you could probably guess that I'm thinking about China right now and the way that right. they are coming down on lots of these yep. questions. But I'm curious if that was something that you were thinking about with regards to this paper as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I should say that this paper is sort of, you know, commits um, philosophical blasphemy because it incorporates two different ethical frameworks within the same paper. This is something that, you know, when I when Mark was pointing this out to me, he was, you know, he he was saying, you know, 
this is a dangerous thing to do because you know in at least in philosophical traditions you don't mix you don't do heterodox philosophy here right? you don't mix frameworks but from the point of view of arguing that there could be different philosophical basis for the same technical widget that actually in our view was a strength that you, you don't have to be limited by oh only if you're utilitarian you should believe in this idea of recourse it could come from it could come from different sources i think that's important right yeah i mean there's this thing you know where you know we talk about you know why why people feel like you know lying is a bad thing and this is a sort of a device used for cs students to, to start thinking about ethical frameworks like people will come up with different reasons why they think lies is a bad thing and they tend to map very nicely into either utilitarianism, Kantian sort of deontology or virtue ethics. And you can start to say, okay, you see different frameworks all give you the same conclusion, but they come, come at it from different approaches. So that was a bit of, you know, I think a little bit of blasphemy we committed there. But having said that, I, I think you're very spot on. And I should say, I know, I, I know almost like next to nothing about how to explore this space further, but definitely non-Western views or not even within the Western well, Western, I mean, you know, even within the American context, right, you know, uh, people have talked about indigenous views on community and ownership, like what does it mean to be custodians of the earth? What does it mean to be custodians of the community? This idea of community is a valuable entity and the individual is not the only sort of method of discourse comes up in many philosophies. It comes up in real concerns about the way, for example, surveillance systems when deployed in the community may not harm an individual per se, but harm the community overall. And if we're unwilling to talk about that, we are missing the key vector of harm. But we need the right vocabulary to talk about community harms. And if there are you know, frameworks to talk about community harms as opposed to individual harms, those are important here. And in fact, you know, even in the AI Bill of Rights, we sort of have a whole paragraph talking about community harms in, in a way that you know, people hadn't really talked about before. And that, you know, we felt was important because of all the, you know, all the learnings we have had from community activists, civil rights folks talking about how there are harms diffuse across communities that need to be recognized. And so, yes, I think thinking about different ways of conceptualizing both who is being harmed and how the harm is accruing is very important to, again, expanding the frame of the solutions we can come up with and how we should think about problems. Yeah, I, I am curious to see if there will be a lot of exploration or if maybe there have already been explanations, explorations of looking at these things from more of a non-Western framework. Because often, I think, when I look at papers that are, are discussing similar issues, they do seem to make this underlying kind of assumption um, that is sort of looking at the the individual harm as right. the most important one. And I guess, as you said, in the Bill of Rights, there's certainly an explicit acknowledgement of, of community harms. And I'd actually love to start talking about the Bill of Rights itself. So mm -hmm. you, were, you were a co-author on this recent AI Bill of Rights blueprint, and we're also involved with the Biden administration. Could you tell me a little bit of the story about how you got involved in this policy world and how the Bill of Rights itself came about. Well, that's a long story, but very briefly, I had been involved sort of both at a distance and more directly in policy work for a few years already. I'd been working with the ACLU. Uh, I was on the board of the ACLU at Utah. I um, had I was a member of various sort of 
research advisory councils that were trying to advise on the design of risk assessment tools for pretrial risk assessments. I was also on a commission set up by the state of Utah, the auditors, uh, Utah Auditor's Office, to put out guidelines for the procurement of AI systems um, within the Utah government. And so I had had some exposure to these spaces already. And um, I've also had, you know, like I said, you know, a fair amount of interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary exposure in these works. And so, you know, when, um, when Dr. Alondra Nelson sort of joined OSTP uh, to sort of envision, and this is really her brainchild, envisioning sort of what it, what, you know, how to sort of think about science and society, which is the name of the division that she sort of created that I joined. Um, she was, you know, looking to bring in people who could sort of help with that. And I think, you know, one benefit I had was that I was a computer scientist who could speak this broader language. And there aren't too many of us. There are some, but there aren't too many of us because uh, I think a lot of the folks doing this kind of sound critique are coming from other disciplines. And having a computer scientist helps, you know, just for the perspective, but also because when you're dealing with technical questions, it helps to have people who can, you know, who have the, how should I say this? Who have the, who have the paper credentials to, to establish authority, <laughs> which is to say, I don't think you need to be a computer scientist to know technical stuff. But having that paper credentials gets you into rooms and into places where others have a harder time getting into. Mm. And that's important. So another, yeah. So so that's where things happened. And that's where we started the work. And you know, uh, there's a bunch of us who are working on this, right? It's 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 a it's a it's a collective effort, you know, within OSTP and also with a lot of guidance from the overall White House and the US government broadly. And that's what led to this document. So it took a you know, it took a lot of time because it was there was a lot of consultation, both on the outside, uh, with civil society partners, community partners, the public at large, industry, you know, everyone who had a stake in the matter, as well as a lot of consultation within the government, U.S. government, because if this is going to be a U.S. government document, it should be something that, that does not, you know, prevent the government from doing things it needs to do and also uplifts work that's already going on. And so that was the goal of putting, and that's why it took this much time to put this all together in a way that sort of honestly captured where things were and where we need to go. The bill itself says it's informed by insights from a group of people, as you mentioned earlier, researchers, technologists, advocates, journalists, and policymakers are, I think, the ones that it lists. Yep. And so I'm wondering what that process of gathering and consolidating insights looked like concretely for you in the process of, of writing this. So it meant a bunch of convenings where we got a bunch of experts together and all these videos are publicly available that can be watched by anyone today um, on six different topics, six themes, you know, on health around um, uh, civil sort of society, a civil use of algorithms and more criminal use of algorithms and more technology itself and so on, uh, consumer protection and things like that. So that was that was one. So get experts in, do convening, listen to what they're saying very carefully and understand what the perspectives they're bringing. There were listening sessions, literally Zoom sessions. People, you know, from the public show up, talk to us, tell us what you're thinking. You know, uh, this formal, there was an R request for information around biometrics as a sort of a specific case study. There was an email address where people could email us, you know, just literally, hey, we are thinking about this. You should think about this. And we got a ton of email from that email address, uh, AI Equity at OSTP. And that was one thing. And then there were, you know, lots and lots of one-on-one -on -one discussions. People would reach out saying, you know, we're from this, you know, group. 
we are concerned about, I don't know, where we'd like to show you examples of how technology is being used effectively to help with disabilities or to help people, um, to help diversify the audience, you know, for a particular product. And we want to tell you about it. They said, sure. And then we would have a meeting and they would tell us about that. And they would tell us what, you know, we would ask them questions about how they did it and what were their insights and what they would want to see from any government document around this topic. And they would tell us. And so there was all of that as well as a lot of discussions within OSTP with colleagues who are experts within the US government, with colleagues who are AI experts in different agencies. If you're dealing with AI in hiring, if you're dealing with AI in housing and urban development, these are all different issues. So it's a lot of conversations. <laughs> I can I can imagine that flurry of perspectives that really provided a pretty comprehensive view of concerns that people were yes. thinking about. I'm curious if there's Anything that was interesting to you in the discussions, the forums you had that perhaps ultimately didn't make it or wasn't really thoroughly represented in the bill? I I would say that at least we, I think, I feel like we tried and maybe we didn't give some topics enough weight as we could have, or is that maybe some folks would have wanted us to. And so, but I think we, yeah, I can't think of anything on top of my head that we just completely bombed on and just missed out entirely. That's that's good to hear. I think perhaps a, a related question, and this is coming back a bit to our earlier discussion about the necessity of framing, but then also recognizing sins of omission, is that I guess the short version of this question is whether you feel like the problems that the rights in your bill um, address are comprehensive, more or less. And I suppose the reason that this question came up for me again is a la seeing like a state, I suppose, when you have this sort of bill or something that looks at the potential harms that algorithms could cause in the public sphere backed by, well, a, a nation state, a government, then you wonder about how if it's looking at the types of harms algorithms cause under a certain framing, um, then you wonder if there's an aspect of self-fulfilling prophecy to it um, and just how that kind of affects the way in which a state is willing to engage with the the realities of of algorithmic harm. Yeah. And, and as you were talking, I realized one thing that I think we did miss out, right? So one thing we did miss out, I think, was we didn't really discuss the way in which we should think about the issues of sustainability, whether the you know widespread use of energy hogging algorithmic systems leads to issues with climate. That's something we didn't address. And that's definitely a real concern that, you know, we, since there was also a climate team within OSTP, we, that was something, you know, we thought you know, was not our scope to sort of discuss, but it is definitely something that the Bill of Rights doesn't talk about. Sure. But your point about sort of measurements and where, you know, in the seeing like a state sort of language where I think there the struggle was to balance between being overly specific and overly concrete in a way that would raise all the issues you just brought up and being so vague that the good ideas could be mutated in ways that would just make the whole thing ineffective. And I think we struggled with that the most, you know, 
the idea of having expectations for systems and having you know a 73 page document right was to say we don't just think it's important that you, we make sure algorithms are safe and effective here are all the ways in which we mean that's important including some ways that people have not really talked about like data reuse and data flow from one context to another and so on so we tried that but you know i think there's always i think a feeling that we weren't specific enough where we should have been, but then we didn't want to make this thousand pages long. <laughs> and so that's always a challenge. I think we also didn't cover as much perhaps about core questions in data privacy. We did have you know, a whole right principle around data privacy, but a lot of it focuses on the way in which data flows get monetized in ways that are harmful to people. Um, the more basic lens of again autonomy and control around that that was a whole that's that's a whole topic of privacy legislation that's been going on for 20 years now and that again felt like something we wanted to be careful not to tread on toes of which was already happening so i think these are sort of some limits and places where you know clearly there's more that needs to be done and i think that's where again you know when you think of the eu architecture with the ai act and the gdpr and the dsa and the dma and other things there's a whole you need a whole constellation of things that have to work together to effectively regulate and manage technological innovation. And this is one part of it. Um, we tried to make it as comprehensive as possible, but there are many things it misses out on. Yeah, there are two things in what you just said that I want to spend a little bit of time on each. The first relating to the EU AI Act, the second to digital privacy. Starting with the EU, the AI Act has been around for a while and there's been plenty of discourse and criticism about it. I think that one of the things I noticed in reading the Bill of Rights, um, you say the framework applies to automated systems that have the potential to meaningfully impact the American public's rights, et cetera. Um, and I spent some time resting on how you think about what it is to be an automated system, because I think that the EU AI Act also had to deal with this we have to actually define artificial intelligence within the legal framework. And so I'm curious how that came up for you when you were describing these these objects, these um, automated systems that the that the bill is going to apply to. This was a it was a struggle and a fight and a bunch of arguments. Why? Because everyone assumes that you have to define AI. That is the first assumption. Okay, first define AI. Even previous, you know, Congress defined the AI, it tried to define AI in the AI and Government Act. We didn't think that was a good idea. We thought it was a bad idea, in fact. And we and I will personally tell you, since I'm outside of government, I think what the EU is doing is a bad idea. I think they're going to get into trouble. The AI Act is not passed yet, but they're tying themselves in knots over this definition. And it's going to be a problem. Why do I think that? Number one, you know. This is putting my sort of academic hat back on. The definition of AI itself has mutated a lot over the years. There was a time when, you know, quite a long time ago, but still a time when people are running away from calling themselves AI people or calling what they were doing AI. That That's the last thing they wanted. <laughs> that's why we have disciplines like machine learning and computer vision and natural language processing. They were all, one at one point in time, this was all AI. And then it sort of became different things. And now everything is AI because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's it's a marketing pitch as well, which is not to say there isn't a clear academic discipline of AI. There is. It is, you know, if you ask any academics, they'll be able to tell you basically what AI is, and there won't be too much disagreement. But in the public sphere, there is a tactical use of the definition to serve different purposes, which means that if you start trying to pin down a definition, 
you're going to get people very quickly trying to define what they're doing as not AI if they don't like it, or define what they're doing as, is as AI if they like it. We've seen this with VCs. We've seen this with you know, the way startups pitch themselves. We've seen this with the way companies try to you know escape from liability. And so our, our view was what is important and what the government should care about is the harms and the impacts on people. And it does not matter what piece of technology you use to do it. Mm. It could be an Excel spreadsheet. It doesn't matter. The questions of accountability and effectiveness and safety and lack of discrimination are still relevant. Because I could take an AI system and train it and then get the trained model simplified so it looks like a bunch of rules. Write down the rules and say, this is my rules. Is this AI? Most definitions of AI would say this is not AI. So am I not responsible anymore? Of course you are. But how are you going to, you, if you start trying to you know, get into weird definitions of the technology, you're going to get stuck in having to adjudicate all these tricks that, you know, these infinite number of tricks that people will come up with to get around it. But if you say, look, I don't care what you did. It, it impacted someone. That's why it's in scope. Then the impact is what matters. If they manage to do something to not impact people, then fine, we don't care anymore. And that's why I think we felt that this was an important step to take and, and is different from you know what the EU is doing. I think what you just said there is really interesting in that once you pin down a definition, then people who want to avoid things, they're going to find a way around it. I think this actually kind of relates to some of the controversy going on in the chess world right now, where we're seeing the situation where you have young players who are sort of being brought up with these incredibly powerful AI systems that are so good at chess. They are learning lines from these AI systems. And perhaps the traditional ways of telling whether somebody is cheating in chess are beginning to fail because people learning the lines from these systems might play in a way that's indistinguishable. I promise this is not totally a tangent. I think the way it relates to what you just said is I have an AI algorithm that is making decisions about loans and you're like, hey, you shouldn't make decisions with this AI system or it's biased or something. So maybe I just give all of its decisions to a person or tell that person to memorize how this thing makes decisions. Uh. And then all of a sudden now I've got a, got a human who's making the decision instead. And it's still the same decision, but it's right. just that I've, I've taught a person to make the same decision an AI system would make. And so that, that felt kind of like a parallel to me. And I could certainly see how once you lock yourself into something, people are going to get really creative and get around it somehow. That's a really good analogy. I, I like that very much. And uh, it did not feel like a digression. I, 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 I sensed where you might have been going, but that was great. I mean, that's that's perfect, I think. And also, it's it's not a concept that we're unfamiliar with, right? So I, I once was, you know, I've been trying and failing to write a paper for a, a while now on this issue of vagueness. There's this notion of constructive vagueness or constructive ambiguity in the law. Like when you write treaties, for example, international treaties, there's a deliberate amount of vagueness that's incorporated into the treaty so that different member states can agree on it and can interpret it the way that works for them. So you can actually get to some broader agreement on a set of principles. In a courtroom, right, not everything is made precise. There's this whole, you know, implement the law via code movement, but there's this constructive and deliberate ambiguity in, in the way laws are written to allow for flexibility and interpretation at the point of context. So this idea of deliberate ambiguity is useful and valuable. Pinning down a definition of AI is the opposite of that. 
I, I do think that deliberate ambiguity is um, really important. And I can I can imagine it kind of getting used in all sorts of different ways. I think there was a, a sort of related notion. I want to say it was more talking about these ideas of, of short-termism and long-termism related to AI safety, where they were talking about these ideas of incompletely theorized agreements where they left certain notions of, of what actually matters in terms of considering short-term and long-term implications of, of harms in AI, sort of vague to the point where somebody coming from the short-term camp, somebody coming from the long-term camp can, as you said, take away what they will from it, but find agreement in terms of this is a, a broader problem that we need to address. We just haven't pinned down a particular definition so that somebody can say, oh, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I care about. Yeah, and sometimes there's going to be contestation, right? Sometimes there is no single definition of, you know, the best form of, you know, where impact is coming from. And, and technology evolves, right? I mean, you know, the AI Act, which is still, by the way, pending, it's not really done yet, right? Is, you know, LLMs, you know, were not a thing when the writing was started. They are now, you know, Dolly wasn't a thing when it started, it is now. So what are you going to do? You know, if you start again, if you can nail down a future-proof definition of AI, good for you. But personally, I think that'll be hard. Yeah, it's it's certainly ever-changing. The other thing I wanted to spend some time on in your earlier comment was this aspect of digital privacy, which I know was the um, third part of the Bill of Rights. And in particular, I want to drill down a little bit into how you think about it. And if you don't mind, I want to kind of put some words from this 2019 article Ben Thompson had called Privacy Fundamentalism to you. You might have read it already, but the relevant parts I'm thinking about are, he has a, has a really interesting way of, of coming at this question of digital privacy. And I think the relevant bit in his article, he says the default state of the internet is the endless propagation and collection of data. You have to do work not to collect data on one hand or leave a data trail on the other. And he thinks that in terms of online privacy in particular, it shouldn't be an end-all be-all, but one part of a difficult set of trade-offs that need to be made when it comes to dealing with this new reality that is the internet. And I think he comes with a really valid perspective. And I think at the time he wrote this, and certainly earlier, there was a lot of discourse that treated digital privacy as an end-all be-all. But I'm curious how, how you think about the issue itself and then how that came into the way this got articulated in, in the Bill of Rights. So one of the things that has often a little frustrated me in some of the data privacy discourse, right? not all of it, but some of it at least, is this, again, this focus on, you know, breach of individual autonomy is the only harm vector, right? So, you know, so the idea that if your data is breached, then that's a harm and we need to protect against that. I, I, my problem with it is I think twofold. Number one, politically, it's hard to get people excited about that. Because if I start seeing benefits of sharing my, you know, location data with my family and others, I'm going to do it because it's useful to me. And and again, you know, this is these are tricky issues. I'm not trying to. I don't want to oversimplify. I think it, these are more complicated than I'm making out to be. But there is an element of politically, it's hard to make that claim. 
separately from the rightness of the claim. I think it's, I think it's a, it's a fair claim, but it's politically it's hard to make it. And also, it you know, that's not the only harm, right? If we were able to share data in controlled ways, as you said, right, where it's not the the assumption is not that it's always open to everyone to use, but there are strict controls then we could in fact allow our data to be shared as long as these protections were in place. And we wouldn't have the issue of, well, the breach of my privacy itself is a fundamental problem, mm -hmm. right? It's more like an unmitigated and unchecked breach of privacy is, an, is a problem. And the reason why it's important for the Bill of Rights work is that you know a lot of the problems we see are because of the sort of secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand use of data where every time you reuse it, you lose more and more of the context, original context in which the data was collected and used. And we know that leads to problems later, right? Out of context data use means you're not, you don't understand the data. It's not reliable. It's not a reliable indicator of anything about an individual. It, it picks up on spurious patterns about a person that are not relevant. It's not, you're not collecting systematically because it's opportunistic. And then all kinds of problems come in. So. Our, our view was that we wanted to attack those questions in the sort of principle on data privacy as well, because you know there was an ongoing discussion about the privacy harms from breach of individual autonomy. But what we're worried about is the monetization, the data economy, the inference economy coming out of this, and the ways in which data flows lead to the misuse of data that's plugged into AI systems down the road. So that was the perspective we brought to the way we were thinking about this. And even things like, you know, continuous surveillance and the way surveillance is used and the way it sort of, you know, vitiates the community environment, going back to community for a second, uh, and the way it disparately affects people, you know, for example, in remote proctoring systems, you know, if you, if you, if you don't have the right skin tone, if you have ADHD, if you're restless in some ways, the housing systems flag you. Again, it's about the inferences being made about you by this data collection as much as the mere act of data collection itself. And I think we wanted to focus on that latter, the, the, the first part, the inferences made about you as the vector of harm. I agree that seems like the most relevant part here. When you spoke about strict controls, I think that one thing that might be in the back of people's mind that always gets criticized is the ways in which the, the GDPR kind of came along and it started to impose constraints on data collection. But then I think what the, the story as it's told is, well, this actually just re-entrenched some of these, these massive companies, your Googles, your Facebooks, that had already collected so much data on their users. And then basically nobody else could catch up. And then the real effects of those controls were perhaps not what the European Union was expecting. And I, I wonder if that kind of came into your discussion or if you've thought about how do you start imposing controls while perhaps avoiding some of these traps? Yeah, I mean, I think which is why we focused not just on collection, but on use. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think that's one part of it. But I, I don't think we have a good answer to the kind of what I'll call the legacy problem, right? What do you do with the companies that have already built their models who can happily throw away their data now? Well, not happily, but can throw away the data now and still have the value attached from it, which is why we're trying to get at, you know, if you're using models essentially from data that is not being collected in a, in a way that is appropriate, then those models themselves are tainted. 
and that we should think about how, what it means to have to, I mean, the FTC has started to look into this, say, look, if you're building models off of data collection processes that are questionable, you have to throw the models out. It's not enough just to stop collecting the data. And I think we've cited those, some of those precedents in how we can think about this. So um, I think there are ways, I don't think we've quite figured them out yet. I think in that sense, this is where the Bill of Rights, the blueprint part is very important that it's, it's sort of laying out what we need to do, but we don't have all the answers yet. And we do have to, you know, as every academic likes to say, do more research, but that's what we want to do. Sure. I think my next question also perhaps relates to this being a blueprint, but principle four in the blueprint states that you should know that an automated system is being used and understand how and why it contributes to, to outcomes that impact you, which I think the, the understanding part of that principle is really interesting. And I think my question to you on this would be, how do you think about what it means for somebody who is being impacted by an algorithm to actually understand that thing? I think there's a lot that kind of comes in there. You might think about algorithmic interpretability, but then also studies that show people who look at the outcomes of interpretability don't actually understand the things they think they understand. And I totally understand that, again, this is a blueprint and something that's evolving. But I, I do wonder how you begin to approach some of these questions. Yeah, that was a concern for us. And I think one of the things we tried to do in the expectations for that principle was to say, your explanations, such as they are, need to be targeted towards the, the context of use, who's asking, what their background is, and what they need from it. So there has been a lot of, a, you know, there's been work in the academic community to try and taxonomize, if you wish, different kinds of explanations. There's still a lot of desire to sort of reduce all explanations to, oh, I'll just figure out the influence of variables and that's my explanation system. Oh, I'll do counterfactual explanations. It's, there's a lot of focus again on the technology of explanation. And I think what we're trying to say is, no, no, no. If you're giving an explanation, you're giving it to someone for some reason in some setting and you can't abstract those away. So you've, you've got the abstraction layer wrong if you're framing it as produce an explanation without asking for whom, when, and how. And so I think the direction for research that has to happen is what does it mean to, you know, how do we, like, what does it mean to say we're giving an explanation to a doctor versus an explanation to a patient? What does that actually mean? I mean, intuitively, I say, okay, a doctor, maybe the doctor mean it has, they have more expertise, so we can give them a higher level of explanation. Maybe they have to make a call, so they need information that helps them do something actionable. Or maybe the patient needs something actionable because they have to decide whether to go through with a procedure, but they don't have the expertise, so it needs a different kind. So I don't know the answer to this, but I think we need to think through for different audiences who have different sort of skin in the game, who have different agency, what that explanation looks like to them and customize and build explanation systems targeted in that way. So. We, we, we don't we should not be thinking about the explanation we think about the explanation for him the explanation for her the explanation for this group you know at, at, at a lower level of at a more fine-grained level of detail mm. and that's i think where we need we do need more work and i, I think there's work that's going on people are doing it i think i guess the other thing i want to say is that a lot of things we say should be done are actually reflections of things that are already being done they're not that 
cutting edge in the sense we're not we're not really going on a limb saying we expect you to do something and no one has yet figured out to do and won't figure out for 10 years. In fact, a lot of things are saying people should do are either being done or are in the research pipeline for being done and are very close. So they're sort of feasible, I think. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And I, I think what you said about reframing the the explanation part from being a purely technical problem to something that does take in a lot of context, social ends, and otherwise is really important. I think as you must have expected in writing this document, there was a lot of public feedback about it, you know, at, at varying levels of criticism. One that I saw was, I think, Annette Zimmerman seems to think that the blueprint shies away from acknowledging that in some places, rectifying injustice can require not using AI at all. And from from reading your work, that is certainly something that, that you have thought about. And I think that's not a new idea to you at all. But I'm curious how you think about perhaps that criticism in terms of the, the particular omission she's getting at. Oh, it's in the Bill of Rights. I don't know what he's talking about. We say this very explicitly. In fact, people yeah. call this out. That is the first time I said it. Right. You should consider up to and including not using the system at all if it turns out your testing is not is telling you that it shouldn't be used. Mm-hmm. So yes, I I <laughs> I am I have to disagree on that point because we do bring it up. Yeah, yeah. I um when I when I was reading it, I I, I didn't really totally understand what she was getting at. Maybe she wasn't satisfied with. I don't know. Maybe there was like a an aspect of we should talk about other ways of rectifying injustice but i guess i read it as like you know this is this is an ai bill of rights and as you said you clearly pointed out like ai isn't always the solution here and i think that's yep. at least in terms of what is the scope of this bill that seemed enough to me so that was that was kind of a criticism i wasn't entirely sure where yeah. it came from i mean it is a long document it's easy to miss things and maybe you know people always feel like you know maybe we didn't emphasize it enough and mm-hmm. i can i can take that critique i mean you know you know we have to choose how we frame it so but it is there and it is it is top of the mind and you know i i i was joking with someone the other day i was talking about some particular line i said oh yeah we argued about this line a lot and i stopped and i said actually we argue about every line a lot <laughs> and this was one line that was a lot of argument about i can imagine yeah the Lawfare blog also had a, a pretty long article on the Bill of Rights. And I think that yeah. the key statement I took from them that I'd love to hear your thoughts on was they called the progress being made with the AI Bill of Rights uneven. And specifically, they call out that important issues in educational access and worker surveillance, as well as most uses of AI and law enforcement, have received insufficient attention. And further, despite its focus on AI research and AI commerce, the White House has yet to effectively coordinate and facilitate AI regulation. I think that last one is kind of, you know, this is this is a difficult thing and very much a, a work in progress. But I'm I'm curious how you respond to or think about that first aspect of, of educational access and worker surveillance. Yeah, I mean, I know Alex, and I've I read I read this. I don't disagree with anything he's saying. I think you know, I think it's perfectly appropriate to call out the limits and the incompleteness of what we're doing because we got to do more. Um, uh, on educational access, I mean, there is a, you know, a secretary, um, uh, the secretary of education just sort of is going to put out a report sometime in the new year about this. And so again, this is one of those things where, you know, if agencies are doing things already, we didn't want to jump on their process and force them to sort of speed things up. We want them to do a good job. 
Um, so at the time, you know, they were working on this, their own report and I know it'll be coming out soon. So I, I would love to see what they're doing and should have come out sooner, probably, but you know, that that's up. That, that's their call to sort of do that. I think that's one thing. On worker surveillance, you know, I, I know the Department of Labor has been thinking a lot about this, and I know they've been trying to put out some guidance. I think they may have put out something recently. I I, I feel like I read something recent in the last few weeks, but maybe I'm wrong. But but they are very much apprised of this issue, and that's why you know, if you notice some of the language around surveillance and the data privacy, it, it sort of is because of their sort of input and their guidance on this front. And, uh, you know, we participated in many hearings that they did on uh, worker surveillance issues. And uh, so I think, I, I think Alex is not wrong to say we need to see more. I think I will say that there is stuff going on that, you know, it's not in the public eye yet. I think it's a good job for people on the outside to keep demanding that it come out because there is stuff going on. And sometimes they need some help and some pressure from the outside to, to really get it out. Yeah, I, I felt when reading a lot of the criticisms of the bill that, I mean, some of them maybe just from not actually reading the bill, but I can also see that there's going to be a lot of calling for things that I have no doubt you are already thinking about. Russell Wald, who um, I think is affiliated with the Stanford Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence Institute, was also pretty frustrated with the Bill of Rights. I think he first made like the classic, this thing has no teeth criticism that yep. you hear of a lot of legislation. This, uh, this wasn't even legislation. If, he had, if it had been legislation and he said no teeth, that's one thing. This wasn't even legislation. So, <laughs> yeah. You know. it's, yeah. Yeah, it's like, what do you, what do you expect for, for a blueprint? From an office in the White House that cannot do regulation and cannot write legislation. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, it's like it's a valid criticism, but it's often you know it's like the the, the White House doesn't write laws. Yeah. And the yeah. White House doesn't do regulation. I'm not allowed to talk to regulators. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. It's like it's it's a longer longer political process. I yeah. think. And yeah. I mean, as you said, it's valid, but it's also not acknowledging some some realities and difficulties. I think that have yeah. to be dealt with. The yeah. the other criticism he made, though, did mesh with my own thoughts when I read your principle five about opting out and having access to a person who can remedy problems. And um, perhaps you've already been thinking about this more privately, but he specifically was like the Department of Veteran, Veterans Affairs, for instance, takes three to five years to adjudicate a claim for veteran benefits. And so there's this aspiration versus practical aspect of of that particular principle and i'm curious how how you thought about that right so if the argument is hey there's this automated system that could be processing veterans benefits your blueprint is saying we should have an opt-out option and now it's taking three to five years is that the substance of the complaint i think i think that's the main substance okay. yeah this is a real this is a valid complaint and we actually address this in the principle by saying if you're you know that the the human recourse so the alternative cannot be significantly more burdensome than the automated system you're replacing it with. And so if you're going to, you know, provide an alternative, it has to be of comparable, you know, efficacy yeah. in all the usual measures. Like it's not enough to say, well, we have this automated system for processing your ID for unemployment benefits, but you can go talk to someone, but they're only open one day a month and blah, blah, blah. That's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. So that's what we said. If you're going to do this, you got to do this in a way that's reasonable. So I think that's fair. I think that yeah, yeah I think a complaint is fair, but it's something that we had considered and has been brought up, you know, had been brought up a lot internally. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I will say that one of the advantages I think of consulting within the U.S. government so widely and outside is that, you know, this might be this might be a bold claim, but 
I can't think of a single criticism that someone has made about this document that we have not already heard on the inside. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'll just say that. I mean, which is not to say these aren't good criticisms. I think people should make them to just point them out. But if we haven't addressed them, it's not because we didn't think of it. Right. It's because it was we had to balance a whole bunch of other things as well. Yeah, I, I certainly had that thought when I was reading a lot of these. And I think it's also maybe beneficial for for listeners to hear you say this and to articulate some of the thinking that's gone on internally about these criticisms. I suppose. And again, this is not because, uh, sorry, this is not because I was like smart or Sorel was smart or uh, Alondra, you know, that we were smart or anything. It's that we talked to a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know, and that's the point of stakeholder consultation. We got a lot of feedback from people who have experiences we did not have mm -hmm. just to make sure that we truly understand. I, I am not an expert in education tech. I am not an expert in health tech. I'm not an expert in, you know, in many of the forms of technology that's being applied, but there are experts and we talked. That's right. And I think in, in the creation of a document like this, there's ultimately going to be a lot of sins of omission. I mean, you can't write literally everything into the document. You do have to choose some areas of focus. Otherwise, you're going to end up writing something that's like a thousand pages long. And who's, who's we had 15 uh, draft principles initially or 14. Mm. Wow. <laughs> I don't think we lost the essence of what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. But we tried to distill and condense and sort of make focus so people could sort of, could be, this could be explained clearly. That makes sense. In terms of this particular affordance you noted with regards to the veterans affairs criticism, so the human alternative can't be a lot more onerous. Um, I, I guess when I think about that, there seem to be kind of two options. So I, I would imagine that to really comply with that principle, you kind of have to, you have a few options, right? Either you just don't use an algorithmic system here, or if say we're in the veterans affairs situation and they're really like, okay, we want to use an algorithmic system, then that's going to have the downstream impact of, well, they've also got to do something about these problems in the department of veterans affairs. And I guess you can see that as a a positive side effect of it if it actually pushes them to improve things in that regard. But it also seems like it has these downstream flows into a whole range of other problems people now have to think about solving that are entirely separate from, from the algorithmic regime. This is now just a problem of like bureaucracy and and these other things that people are going to have to start thinking about in order to to properly comply if they start wanting to use algorithmic systems. That's right. And I, I will say, so there are two things. Number one, there are two very important words in that principle, where appropriate, <laughs> to allow for some acknowledgement where maybe a human alternative isn't, you just cannot do it. It's just not reasonable. And that's okay. But I will say that this was one of the harder ones to frame out because it's clear we need something because systems will break. No matter how well you make them, they will break, they will fail. They will fail in systematic ways for populations whose needs are not being considered. And you need some recourse for this. So this has to be there. But the nature of how it has to be there is I think tricky. And so these points you're bringing up and the points of folks are valid point there, then it's not easy. I, I, and I, we try to sort of, you know, make it so that people can apply their a good judgment about how much to accommodate and where and where it's appropriate to get people to think about this, right? As you said, right, just if this gets people to think a little bit more about their processes, that's a win. 
we didn't want to make it so rigid that you have to have a process and you know because the hope is that okay if you do automation in a way that's well designed that actually caters to people's needs then over time you will have less and less need for this human fallback because people are achieving what they need with these systems and that's a good outcome that's what would be great if that were the case we just recognize that you know that's there's always going to be some glitches so you just have to have you should be you have to recognize that there's always going to be glitches you can't have a system you put an automation system in place and have no fallback and suddenly have an understaffed office and suddenly people are waiting 8 hours for something because there wasn't enough staff i think that was the goal of this and i think we we struggled a bit to try and convey that sentiment here yeah and i think i think some of this too falls into that conversation we're having earlier over solutionism versus pure criticism. You are moving the bill forward in lots of ways. And I think that many of the byproducts of a bill like this are, as you say, going to be quite positive. And it's not perfection. And that's going to take many, many steps, lots of time, many more conversations, making mistakes. But we can't expect the first thing that comes out of the OSTP to be perfect and solve all of our problems. And yes, it's called an AI Bill of Rights and specifically a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. So again, not even claiming to be a, a final document, but when we do get that AI Bill of Rights, that is not a blueprint too. I think that we have to be careful not, again, not to expect perfection out of it. I mean, if we expect perfection from the original Bill of Rights, we haven't been paying attention to the judicial <laughs> battles of late. <laughs> Indeed. They're, they're a constant source of debate and reinterpretation, even to this day, 200 odd years past. Yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd love to pivot a little bit to the global picture here. I think that the the blueprint here is kind of coming at a very interesting time where we're seeing lots of discourse over regulation internationally. And quoting the Lawfare blog again, I, I think they said at one point that the US should play an active role in helping Europe develop a balanced and nuanced regulatory framework for AI. Do you think of the blueprint and some of your own work as as falling into that request at all? Yes, because I think it represents, you know, the U.S. perspective on these questions. I think, you know, we haven't had a U.S. perspective on these questions. There's been no clear assertion of how the United States should think about issues around AI governance. This, in one way, is one of the first ones. And so this is our move. The EU made their move. Their move is in the context of their own regulatory legal frameworks. China's made their move. They have their own ideas. Other countries, whether that's Singapore, Australia, Canada, have made their moves. In fact, I think you know many countries have got some kind of AI governance strategy they've listed out. This is the US's move. And I think once we have, again, once we have something, we can discuss. But if we don't have anything, then we're constantly talking on the terms of others. And I think it's important for us to have our own. So we can say, okay, now let's talk about how we can harmonize, you know, what the EU is trying to do with the AI Act together with what's happening on the US side. Now we don't, you know, this is still of course just a white paper. It's not even formal law or legislation. Uh, you know, eventually that would be nice to have that, but at least it's a first move to say, okay, this is kind of where we're coming from. Let's talk. It's important to have something on the table. And yeah, 
I think um, in terms of the EU AI Act, like you pointed out the very valid criticism that there are a lot of aspects of it locking into definitions that are under debate. I read another criticism that pointed out that it felt like a patchwork of, of older legislation that didn't really seem to be updated enough to handle the realities of AI. And I think kind of stemming off of that, because this is something that's just locked into a lot of debate, China, for instance, which you also mentioned, has kind of been able to move forward. And Matt Sheehan wrote that China basically is running some of the world's largest regulatory experiments on topics that European regulators have long debated. I think that's a a really interesting kind of opportunity just to sort of watch the way in which these regulatory experiments play out and kind of learn the ways in which the U.S. can engage with some of these questions. I think that there's there's some care to be had there. As we discussed, there's maybe some underlying assumptions of what the relevant vectors of harm are, for instance, in, in crafting legislation around algorithms that we should be careful of. But I'm curious if, if that's something that you have been watching yourself and perhaps for others who are kind of looking at this space, you know, what what things about these regulatory experiments you would perhaps want them to, to pay attention to, if you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a big question. I've been maybe not watching the international developments as closely as I would like to because of watching a lot of the internal developments and also other work inside Brown. But for me, I think what's interesting is trying to deconstruct from both language and things not spoken, you know, what the underlying philosophy is, where it's coming from, and how that jibes or doesn't jibe with, you know, things that we think would make more sense in the US. You know, for example, the whole debate about sectoral versus horizontal regulation, right? And that's the thing where there may not be a right answer. It just may be the US is used to doing something one way, the EU is used to doing another way, and you kind of have to just work within that, right? You can't just up over, even if, for example, you know, I like the idea of horizontal regulation, let's say, that the EU is trying to do. It's very hard to make that work in the US context for a gazillion reasons. And so instead of trying to redo, to force something into a structure where it's unnatural, can we adapt it to work within the US? So I think understanding the local context for these things is also important, as well as understanding the broad philosophy. So, you know, what China is doing with regulation, they've gone, you know, one step beyond with social media, going beyond saying, don't spread bad stuff to saying, you know, you must try to spread good stuff, right? The sort of beneficial aspects. That's a whole level beyond, I think, what anyone else has been willing to do. And I think that, again, is a function of China's internal context. And I, I won't get in, I, you've talked to Matt about this. I won't get into more of that. Although, I mean, I, I, I actually, it's, like I said, I had spoken to Matt himself about some of, you know, our views on what China was doing as well. So I think we're watching. I think the experiments are good. I think, you know, there are experiments happening at the States, at localities, at country level, at the international cooperation level. I think it's good as long as we recognize that we're doing experiments and are looking to see what the experiments reveal to us. <laughs> if we don't treat them as experiments, if we don't try to watch what they're, what the results are, if we don't try to figure out what outcomes we want and see how to what extent the outcomes are being achieved by the experiment, then we'll have a problem because then we won't have learned anything. So if we are going to experiment, we should treat it as an experiment and make sure we're learning something from the experiment, fail or success. That seems like the right framing to me too. I think this might be a good point to shift into some broader perspectives and 
talking a little bit more about your personal experience. So you did tell the story of how you got involved in the policy space earlier. And I think that it's a common lament that there are not very many technical people in Congress and the government more broadly. I can see how how incentives would make it kind of clear why. But I would love to hear a little bit about some of the tensions that you have personally faced as an academic researcher entering this policy space. So there's tensions as an academic researcher, there's tensions as a technologist, and there's tensions as a, technolo- a technological academic researcher as well. <laughs> there's a whole bunch of things. Right? Uh, in other words, some of these are, you know, as an academic in policy spaces, some of the tensions are the usual ones, right? So academics want to live on the cutting edge. Policy wants to know about what's existing and what's established. Academics work on a time frame that could be a couple of years. Sometimes in policy work, especially the White House, you have a few weeks at best. Academics want to get it right. Policymakers want to make things happen. And again, that tension between, you know, waiting enough time till you get it right versus making the best you can with what you have, you know, is a pragmatic versus sort of idealistic view that also has a bit of a tension. Academics are used to doing things and getting credit for them. And policy work, you know, you have to, you know, work with teams and it's it's team it's teamwork, right? I mean, uh, is a, a, a lot of teamwork goes on in these things. So that's on the academic side. I think on the technologist in policy spaces side, I feel like there's still a curious way in which technologists are viewed in policy circles as the folks who push the technology or the folks who explain the technology, but not as folks who can wane on policy. So we're 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 given a box, you know, it's a nice shiny box. It's up on a pedestal. Everyone says, "Ooh, technologists, we can say a bunch of stuff." Then they say, "Thank you very much. You can go home now. We're going to go make our policy." And I'm like, "Wait, wait, wait. I have more things to say about your policy." And they're like, "No, no, we don't want to hear that anymore. We're done. We, we we got your explanation. Go away now." And so, you know, for a long time I was happy to be an explainer of tech, but I feel like that role is no longer is is not I think it's an important role, but confining technologists to that role is is missing out on what technology can offer precisely because sometimes we have to go beyond where the technology is and we have to imagine different directions and you need tech people in this room with the policy people in the same dynamic the way i described earlier because something new has to happen mm. and so that i think is still a work in progress i think there are some people who are able to do that a lot of them come from the policy side and absorb enough technology to you know do this i think that's good uh, I think you need the other side as well. You need technologists coming and absorbing enough policy insights to go and do their work as well and understand what the tools of power are and how to make them work. I, I think to what you said, it, it certainly seems like it has to be a work in progress at this point, because just as far as I'm aware, there are few to no technocrats. And I think that that overlap is still still underexplored at this point. So even if we are getting the right people in the right rooms together, perhaps interacting in the right way, as you've suggested, there's still going to be a a lot of learning about how do we do that properly. And so I think that we probably can't expect that to be as fruitful as we might like it to be um, until there's been some some experimentation and some, some more experience with this as well. Yeah, and then technologies need to learn as well, right? People should be doing masters in public policy if they want to. They should understand how policy gets made. It's not it's not easy. It's it's tricky. And I've seen some really, you know, many really sharp people in government who make policy, who really think, you know, superbly well about all the different levers at the disposal, how to navigate political climates, how to think about timing and effectiveness and how to marshal the right groups and the right stakeholders. That's a skill. 
it's a real skill and you know technologies don't have that skill uh, we have to understand so we have uh, technologies have a lot of learning to do as well so it's but it's that but it's it's that kind of double learning right from the policy side learning about tech from the tech side learning about policy is where you can have really creative solutions yeah i think that's um a really a really good way to think about it i guess just as a even existing in technology i think there are ways to get some of that exposure like one thing i'm kind of learning as you know a, a software engineer 2 years out of college right now is sometimes the solutions to the things you want even in a tech company aren't always just writing more code there are often political ways to get by things and to actually get the things you need done but there's so much more depth than that when you are dealing with the world of well actual policy it becomes much more complicated i imagine not really having that exposure than than it is going to be within a tech company and so i can see how having some of that formal training in public policy and really understanding the levers available and how you actually take advantage of those is is immensely valuable for technologists looking to make a greater impact there. I mean, it's also kind of fun engineering problem in one sense, right? You just have a whole bunch of different tools at your disposal. You have to learn how to use them and you have to learn how they work together and which tools work in which situation. So if you want to think of it like an engineering problem, it is one. It's just a different kind of engineering problem. Yeah, that's that's another that's a nice way to frame it too. I I think you preempted the closing question I was going to ask you, which was really what would your advice be to somebody who is a technologist with that background, but wants to figure out how they can make an impact in the policy space and really better understand how all of these things fit together. I think that you already spoke to a little bit of that. I'm not sure if you have much more of that that you would say to that sort of person besides, you know, perhaps do a master's in public policy, try to engage with these things. So there's more. I mean, I think, you know, I, I used to, when I was in DC, I would ask people who were there, like, how did you end up here? Mostly because for an academic, there's a very linear and well-defined career path. If you want to become an academic, it's pretty straight and narrow and, you know, and along a precipice of a cliff and whatever other analogies you want, but it's very clear. But, I, but for people who work in DC in different capacities, you talk to them and you find everyone has a different career path. It's just, it's very different. It's not, there isn't the one single path. There's a whole bunch of different things. So, so for technologists who want to get into these spaces, first of all, recognize that there isn't one way. There are multiple ways of doing it. Um, a lot of it is building a network, building connections, making being useful. And you can be useful in many ways, right? People, a lot of people I heard, oh, we worked on a campaign, right? We helped write some position papers for a campaign. And so that's how we got invited to be part of the administration. Uh, once it you know was formed, or you know you worked actually at the ground level in the campaign, or you worked at a state level office, right? And you know so that's another thing, right? You don't have to work in federal government; you can work at a state, you can work in locale, and there it might be easier to get in because they you know they people need help everywhere, and if you offer your services, you can and if you can be be useful. And again, the goal is not to go in waving your technology flag and say I will help you do more tech. It's more like I will go in and listen to your concerns and see where I can be helpful where appropriate. And you know, not assuming you will always be helpful and always it's always appropriate. And if you can do that and be useful, I think then you know things happen, right? You word gets around. People say, "Oh yeah, there's this person. He helped in the state office. Maybe you want to talk to him or talk to her." You know, so it's like it's a whole, it's a whole thing. And so I think 
don't think of it as like, okay, do this thing and then suddenly you'll be in an agency. Although there are things like that, there's Tech Congress, there's PIFs, the Presidential Elimination Fellowships, and things like that. But there's also other ways to get involved. Just, I think getting involved in policy work at whatever capacity seems possible with the network you have in building a network is a way to start. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to frame it. I I think I hear this a lot just in terms of getting involved in politics in general. There is this overfocusing on the national level because of course that's what shows up on the news, that's what everybody thinks about when they hear government, but there is as you're saying so much that goes on at the state and even more local levels than that where you can really actively get engaged and do quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. And it, it helps to learn something, right? I mean, it, it, I learned a lot from all my other interactions even before I came into this role. It helped, you know, I, I didn't realize it was like, oh yeah, we had the same problem when I was talking about this at the state of Utah. And so it, it helps to do that. Kind of thing. Yeah, I think this is probably a, a good place to close out. So Suresh, I want to thank you for all of the work that you've been doing with with the Bill of Rights and, and your research. I think this is an incredibly important set of questions to be tackling. And I just find you to be incredibly thoughtful on so many issues, both in your work and in our discussion today. So I want to thank you for that and for taking the time to talk to me today. It was really an honor. Well, thank you. It's, it was a pleasure. And uh, I thought we had, you know, it was a good, deep and wide ranging debate uh, discussion. And I thank you for that. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.